Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans, chapter 14, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, we're going to read from Romans 14, verses 1 through uh, 12 this morning. Uh, some people have already commented to me on the note sheet in the bulletin and said, What's wrong with you? How long are we going to be here? Um, well, I have a few weeks to make up for, so just sit back and enjoy the air conditioning and listen. Here we go. Romans, it won't be that long. <laughs> Romans 14. We're going to start reading in verse 1 of the scriptures. This is God's word. It's a great privilege to read. Romans 14.1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die... We belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Uh, it happens regularly at prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We meet in a small circle in the back. You can come anytime you want. It's not a closed group. We meet in the back, and I will say, when we're about ready to pray, I will say, does anybody else have any prayer requests? And every now and then, once a month or so, someone will say, our country. And when that person says, please pray for our country, everybody in the circle goes, oh. Now, you know why we groan. We groan. Uh, we're, it's not because we dislike our country. That's a pretty patriotic group in the back that meets. But we groan because of the current state of our country. Pray for our country and, and we groan like we're looking at the ceiling that's leaking again and we thought we'd fix the roof before. Uh, right? uh, on Wednesday night um, when we prayed, I asked God that he would give us leaders that are marked by wisdom, grace, patience, and restraint. I'm not sure I have enough faith to pray that way. So it certainly seems like we could use more of that, right, in Washington, D.C., wisdom, grace, patience, and restraint. Uh, these are the days when, when people say things like, our political dialogue has never been this bad, it's never been this toxic, and then some smart historian will say, well, do, you do remember that about 150 years ago we were shooting one another, and then you say, okay, we're not shooting one another, that's true, I guess, but, but it's, still, it's not very comforting, it's still bad. 
Uh, We live in the age when you can't be friends with people with whom you disagree. You can't be friends. You, You can't even be polite to people with whom you disagree. It's not acceptable. You can't admire them. You can't compromise with them. You can't do business with people with whom you disagree. In fact, if you disagree with anyone at all, they are the enemy and you have to destroy them. That's the rule. And into this mess... We step as followers of the Lord Jesus. Uh, We have a clear set as followers of the Lord Jesus of, of core convictions. We gather around them. We commit ourselves to them under the authority of the Lord Jesus. But we also step into this mess that is our world to show people that you can do things differently. We step into the mess to show people that it is possible to love those who are different than you are. We agree about our our core convictions, but there are lots of things we as followers of Jesus Christ disagree about, and we love each other uh, anyway, not begrudgingly, not suspiciously, not at a distance, but sincerely and, and deeply and gladly. Now, if that's not true of your experience in the body of Christ, of loving people with whom you disagree or being loved by people that disagree with you, uh, well, let me remind you that we're working on it, right? At least that's the goal. It's what we aspire to. And here in Romans 14 is this passage that is central in the Bible to our efforts to love people with whom you disagree. In Paul's day, the church was, uh, was, uh, almost came apart over issues like eating meat and observing special days. That's at least what he's writing about in verse 2 when he talks about vegetables and in verse 5 when he, when he talks about days. Most of these disagreements probably had to do with the background of the people. Did they come into the body of Christ from a Jewish background or did they come into the body of Christ from a Gentile background? The Jews in particular were sensitive to the issue of idolatry, which made eating meat awful hard. You see, uh, in those days, most meat that was sold for consumption in a marketplace had started in a temple, a pagan temple. And if you wanted to eat meat, you had two choices. You could, one, go to a temple festival, a temple meal, and uh, you would go in and sit down and there would be a prayer to some Roman or Greek god and then they would serve meat, meat of an animal that had been killed and sacrificed to that Roman or Greek god. That was one way you could eat meat. If you wanted to eat meat, uh, another way you could go to the marketplace and you could buy meat. It was the meat that had been left over from the temple. So it was still tainted with idolatry. And there were Jewish Christians who said, we can't have anything to do with that at all. The church in Corinth seemed to have a problem with this too. Paul told them not to go to the temple festivals to eat in the temple, but he did tell them it was okay to buy the meat from the marketplace, but not everybody was sure about that, and and in which case Paul also told them, if eating that meat that's sold in the marketplace violates your conscience, you should avoid it. Don't do it. And that's the key word here we come to again, your conscience. Our core convictions as a congregation are over things that the Bible teaches directly and repeatedly. But there are other things. There are hundreds and thousands of decisions that we have to make that the Bible touches on tangentially in in broad principles. Issues the Bible does not address directly and repeatedly. In the providence of God, he gave us 66 books that fit together in this one little volume. And it is understandable. The technical term for that is perspicuity. We believe in the perspicuity of the Bible, that that we can understand what it says with the help of the Holy Spirit. And it tells us a lot of things. 
It tells us about what's really important. It tells us about the things that we gather together around to celebrate. But this book does not uh, touch directly and repeatedly on every decision that you're going to have to make. If it did, it'd be like 67 volumes, right? You carry your Bible and have uh, visit your chiropractor at the same time. So there are things that um, uh, in the providence of God, he has left us under the authority of the Lord Jesus uh, to decide the areas of liberty, areas where we're supposed to follow our conscience. There was the issue of meat. Then there was the issue of special days. Again, the Christians from a Jewish background have been taught that following God faithfully means observing special religious holidays, particularly the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. They set it aside as a day of rest and not work. It was, the Sabbath is one of the most significant indicators of the fact that you are a follower of the law that God gave through Moses. By every indication we have in the New Testament, the early Christians met not on the seventh day of the week, but they met on the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. They usually met, these Christians met in the evenings on the first day of the week because it was a day of work, not a day of rest. So they would work all day and then they would meet together and eat and worship on that first day. Now, through the influence of our Puritan forefathers, many believers today treat Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. But are you free to treat it, as verse 5 says, just like every other day? Hmm. Those are the issues here in this text. We have our own list of areas of liberty that we disagree about and we talk about, like um, the moderate use of alcohol, like dancing. I mentioned those two because we're Baptists. We might as well hit the big ones right off, right? I mean, if we solve that, there's nothing else for us to talk about. Uh, here's some. How about a school choice, public, private, home, a fair trade coffee. You didn't argue about this in fundamental circles 25 years ago, but people do now. Uh, how about the amount of violence that is acceptable in entertainment? Uh, the level of clothing, casual or formal, that is appropriate for the gathering of God's people for worship. Reading books about Harry Potter. Getting tattoos. Uh, voting for Republicans or voting for Democrats or not voting at all. That's a short list. Our list could be much, much longer. We have different convictions about these items and we love each other even though we disagree about them. Now, in order to do that, we've made a number of commitments as followers of Jesus. Let me just uh, mention briefly four of them, four of these commitments that we have made in order to love people with whom we disagree about these secondary, tertiary, uh, fourth-order issues. Um, here's the commitment number one. Our commitment number one is to disagree about these areas of liberty and still recognize one another as brothers and sisters. To disagree and still recognize one another as brothers and sisters. We believe that it is possible for Christians to have different convictions about these issues and for them still to be believers. There are things about which we still disagree and our unity is not dependent on 100% agreement. Remember the poem by, uh, that Kent Hughes shared. I don't think he wrote it, but he shared it. This is not our motto. Here, here it is. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. 
Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I have fellowship with you. It's not how we treat one another. Now we also make the commitment, secondly, to order our convictions in importance. To order our convictions in importance. There are things that are more and less important, and in order to love one another in the midst of our disagreements, we have to be able to order our disagreements, order our convictions. Remember uh, what Kevin DeYoung said about being a disagreeable person. He said, disagreeable people defend every conviction with the same degree of intensity. There are no secondary or tertiary issues. Everything is primary. You've never met a hill you wouldn't die on. Here's a good example. This is more about preference than about convictions, but it it will work as an example right here. Two weeks ago at our congregational meeting, we had a discussion about the current plan to replace the pews in this room with chairs. Now, there are pros and cons to both forms of seating, and we're not unanimous in in our agreement about which would be best, but everybody in this room agrees that whatever you sit on is not as important to us as the Trinity or the deity of Jesus. I mean, it's close, but not that important, right? Right? Um, High on your list of emotional attachments, but not your convictions. So you, you watch us. If you're new to the church, if you're a teenager, not a member of the congregation because of your age, you watch. Watch how we're going to disagree about this. If you're not a member, we'll help you decide whether you want to join this church. But you watch how we talk to one another and watch how we treat one another while we have this disagreement. Strong feelings, but we all recognize that this is lower on the list of things that we dis- that, uh, of our convictions, right? So you watch. We'll love each other in the midst of this disagreement. I am very confident of that in our congregation. So uh, we order. I read an article uh, last week uh, by Andy Nacelli. It was very helpful. It was about what the Bible teaches on divorce. It was a long technical article and um, one of the reasons that Andy Nacelli, he published this article, and in a footnote he mentions that he was a bit anxious about writing it because he disagrees with his, one of his pastors, a man by the name of John Piper. So he took his article and he showed it to John Piper. And he said, what do you think about this? And, and um, John Piper wrote about some of his disagreements. And then John Piper said this to him. The things we love and live for and would die for are so great that this disagreement could not overthrow all those riches. I think what you think about the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage is way more important than pews and and chairs. But look still what he says. The things we love, the things we live for and would die for, are so great that this disagreement could not overthrow all those riches. That's a wise and mature statement. Here's a third commitment to love those with whom you disagree about areas of liberty, you have to commit to credit one another with living lives that please the Lord. Credit one one another with living lives that please the Lord. Credit each other. You You are trying to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. I credit you with that. You notice how optimistic Paul is about this? Verse 6 where he he says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Um, Those who eat meat 
eat meat to the Lord. Those who don't eat meat, don't eat meat to the Lord. And they're both trying to please God. Thinking like this will stretch you, I think. So on the one hand, it's really easy to see how those who abstain are doing something to honor the Lord. They're making sacrifices. They're, they're, they're denying themselves something and honoring uh, in honor to the Lord. But what about those who, who make no, no special provisions for the day, for the Lord's day? Are they doing it to the Lord? And how do you do that to the Lord? I suppose it's easier to see how you eat meat to the Lord. You give thanks, right? I mean, there, there's that. In our culture, we, we seem to have this default that the only way to honor the Lord, or the best way to honor the Lord is through depriving yourself through not enjoying God's good gifts. Monks honored the Lord by going to the desert and not having any of life's uh, pleasures. What about, is it possible to honor the Lord by receiving and enjoying His good gifts, by lifting a bottle of A1 to the heavens and saying, thank you God for steak. So we say to one another, you don't drink alcohol to the glory of God? No, I don't. May God get all of the glory that your abstinence brings. May He be pleased by your effort to honor him by abstaining. And may he get all of the glory that, that comes from your abstinence. And we say to one another, you drink alcohol? Yes, I do. Moderate alcohol, I drink it. May God get all of the glory that is possible for him to get from the whiskey that you drink. That sounds strange. Yeah, that, you, some of you don't like that, do you? Hmm... Okay, here, I'll tell you something. If you don't think that God is getting glory from your whiskey, then you shouldn't be drinking it. If you don't think it's possible for God to be honored and glorified by you drinking whiskey, then don't drink it. But if, if, if you can receive it with thanksgiving before him and an honor to him, then may God get all of the glory that your whiskey brings. Is that possible? Seems to be what this passage is suggesting. If you drink it like a little kid who stole cookies and is hiding it in the closet, then stop. All right, now let's move on. Here we go, shall we? Well, you think about that later. You can fight about it. Here's a fourth commitment today for today. Fourth commitment. Uh, We resist the temptation to judge or show contempt. We resist the temptation to judge or show contempt. So to be a a congregation that doesn't trample on the consciences of one another, we're committed to resisting this temptation. These two verbs, don't judge and don't show contempt, um, show up several places in this passage. In, In verse 10, they are. And if you're paying attention, here we are. We haven't talked about verse 10 yet. We've talked about all the others so far, but we're on the verge of something new. And Paul here asks these questions. Verse 10 You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? Oh, good questions, Paul. Indeed, why? Why are we so tempted to judge one another or to treat them with contempt? And remember the temptations. The temptation is to judge. If you eat meat and you don't honor special days, then you're not faithful enough. You don't love Jesus enough. You're not honoring him enough. You're not as committed a Christian as I am. That's sort of judging. Uh, 
Paul is, is not here talking about healthy discernment. He's talking about belittling criticism. Uh, Donald Sinekian would like us to think about the differences between the eyes of a doctor and the eyes of a judge. It'll be fair season pretty soon in Lancaster County. Think about how a vet looks at an animal as opposed to how a judge in the ring looks at an animal. A vet looks at an animal uh, hoping to find something wrong to provide relief. A judge looks at an animal to find something that's wrong to disqualify. Don't judge, Paul says. Have the eyes of a doctor toward one another, not the eyes of a judge. Then he says, don't show contempt. Well, to show contempt someone is to dismiss someone. You're not important. You're stuck in all of your rules and all of your legalism. And, 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 and I don't need you in my life because you're so behind me. I'm so much maturer than you are, more mature. Charles Spurgeon said that this judging, this contempt, he says, is actually unnatural. That's the word he uses. It's unnatural for Christians to do that. Why, he says, because we're brothers and sisters. You know how many times Paul uses in this passage the word brothers and sisters? Six times. He has not used that phrase since Romans 12, 1, where he says, I urge you then, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. He uses it over and over and over again here. Uh, we're family, and it is unnatural for us to judge one another or to treat one another with contempt. <laughs> now, I know that that may not work that way in your family, right? But you know it should work this way, Right? Brothers and sisters don't fight with one another. Brothers and sisters fight for one another. <laughs> Devaney, don't you know what time it is? It's summer. My kids are with each other all the time. All they do is fight with one another. They're not fighting for one another. I know, but it's in the Bible, so pay attention. This is what brothers and sisters are supposed to do. Fight for one another and not with one another. I know it doesn't work your, that way, but it's supposed to, right? It's the goal. Sometimes, you know, you have families, they, they bicker here and there, but if you threaten one of them, you threaten all of them. They've got their eye on the enemy at the gate. In your family, you, you tolerate each other's quirks. You hang on when they make terrible choices. Your family, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not natural to sh judge or to show contempt to members of the family. And we're family. So here's Paul's question. Why? Why do you do it? Why do you judge and why do you show contempt? Well, I, I have one suggested answer. I think one of the reasons that we do it is because it allows you to remind yourself how very righteous you are, especially in comparison to others. John Burke wrote this, uh, this paragraph from him. Judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good. And I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm being moody, but I have a good reason for it. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his bad breath. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No, but there's correction that values with mercy and there's correction that devalues with judgment. I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such things. 
Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test, and I throw in a little condemnation of our Department of Public Safety for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks this music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because look, people, it says ten items or less, and I count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't this teenage checker, what is she wearing, focus and work so we can get out of here? Judging is our favorite pastime, if we're honest, but we're not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resent being held to. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. Then there's the issue of control. I think that's why we like to judge one another or why we're tempted to it. Judging people, showing contempt for them is a form of control. It's an act of assumed authority, assumed supervision. I have the right and I have the power to judge you. And that, I think, is why Paul moves on to his next subject, which is namely your accountability to God. We're going to spend the balance of our time here. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about God's judgment seat. Sometimes we call it, more often we call it the judgment seat of Christ. Before we do that, remember why we're talking about this and why Paul goes in this direction. Um, You should not judge one another or show contempt because when you do, you are assuming a role for yourself, that of judge, that is God's alone. Or to put it another way, the reason we so often succumb to the temptation to judge one another is because we have forgotten this great truth that all of us are accountable to God. Trust me, God is infinitely more capable of responding to your fellow believers and how they handle their conscience than you are. When it comes to Christian liberty, brothers and sisters, let's let's step back in recognition of God's great role as judge, this truth should loom large in your mind and in your heart. Now let's think about this. We're going to read the passage again first. So look with me again at verses 10 through 12. Paul says, uh, well, I'm going to start at the end of verse 10. Um, For we will all, he says, stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. This is one of the places in the Bible that speaks about our future accountability as followers of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul's emphasis here is on our individual accountability. Do you notice that in verse 12? Each of us, um, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Each man of himself, each woman of herself, you and you alone, giving account to God for you, not for anyone else, but for you, you definitely, you yourself, each of us. And this accountability, Paul argues here, is a function of the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. In verse 11, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 45. I printed those verses out in context from Isaiah 45 so we can look at them. It's worth looking at those. So look at Isaiah 45, verse 22. We're going to start there. Look what Paul says. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He is God. There's no other God. 
And what does this sovereign deity demand of us? That you turn to him and be saved. He will rescue you. He commands you to turn to him and be saved. Now, Paul paraphrases the next part in Isaiah 45 in Romans 14. He says, as I live, declares the Lord. But here's what verse 23 of Isaiah 45 says. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. This is serious. God is saying, listen to me, and I mean it. I really mean it. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Here's what they'll say. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. Does that sound like Psalm 118? We read that a little bit ago. In the Lord alone are my deliverance and strength. This is a declaration of God's sovereignty, and it is individual too. Every knee, every tongue. Does this remind you of Philippians 2? It should. I hope it does. I printed that out too. Let's look at what it says. Philippians 2, verse 5 ends with with the name Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. And what's wonderful about this is that in Philippians 2, Paul takes this passage about the God of the Old Testament and applies it to the Lord Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He's the the God who speaks in Isaiah 45 is the Lord Jesus who died and rose again. Paul's been writing about his lordship in Romans 14. He's the Lord of the dead and the living. For this very reason Christ came and died, Romans 14.9 says, that he might be the Lord of the dead and the living. And he is indeed Lord and will be acknowledged as Lord by every knee and every tongue in this room, in every room and in every cemetery on the planet. So this is this grand celebration. Why do we worship together despite the differences that we have? Because of this vast, overwhelming conviction that Paul is celebrating here, that Jesus is Lord. And that matters more to us than anything else. And if you say that Jesus is Lord, like I say that Jesus is Lord, we're on the same team. Come join and and worship with us and and let's work on this together, figuring this out, all the implications of his lordship. Help me together to understand all the ways that the Bible describes the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. At the center, of course, he is the Lord of sin and death. Come and be saved, he says in Isaiah 45. Saved. Saved from what? What? Saved from God's wrath against our sin because God is very angry with you because you are in rebellion against him. So what do we do about it? What, what, where should we turn to be saved from God's wrath? Turn to God. Does that make sense? Turn to me. I will save you. From who? Me. Oh, how? Through my son's obedient death on the cross. He bore God's wrath in your place for you. Turn to him and be saved. This is the first and grandest of all the implications of Jesus' lordship. The lordship of Jesus is that he is Savior. 
Isaiah 45 says not everyone will believe this. Instead of turning to him to be saved, they rage against him. And on that day when their knees bow and their tongues confess, they will be ashamed. Do you see why this is supposed to loom large in your heart and your mind? We're accountable to him. In him, he has all the supremacy in all things. Who am I to judge you or to show you contempt for how you respond to secondary, third order, fourth order matters? I am not a suitable substitute for God himself. Now, I want to think with you about this judgment for a few minutes. This is a description here of, again, what is often called in Romans 14, the judgment seat of Christ. And here are three questions that I want to ask and answer about it, and then I want to clarify because I'm not going to be able to answer the third question very well. well. You'll see when I get to that. Number one, what is the judgment seat of Christ? So what are we talking about here? The word translated seat in the text is the Greek word bima. Some of you are old enough. I remember when I was a kid listening to old men. They all seem to be old men. Of course, I was six, so everybody's old then. But listening to these old men talk about uh, the bima seat of Christ. Do you remember those conferences? The bima seat of Christ. Well, uh, the bima was a raised platform. Uh, It was the recognized place for judgment. In the book of Acts, it's used often to talk about the Roman governors, where they stood for judgment. Uh, in, In Olympics... In the athletic competitions, uh, athletes were awarded on top of the bema. They would go to the raised platform to receive their uh, rewards. Uh, in our culture, in our culture, when a judge takes his position, we say the judge has taken the bench. In Paul's day, you would say the judge has taken the bema. And the other place in the Bible where the word bema appears prominently is in Second Corinthians five ten. Look what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, that's Bema, of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Notice the individual emphasis again here. Each of us, we must all, each of us, will receive what is due us. That's what. Now, question number two. When? When is the judgment seat of Christ? The basic answer is, is at the end times. This is part of the end times. But as you can imagine, here's where followers of Jesus disagree with one another. There are several different, because it has to do with the end times, we can't, we can't agree about that. There are several different judgments described in the Bible. There's a judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. There's this judgment here in Romans 14. There's the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. And, and we don't agree about how those judgments are related to one another. Now, I believe that this judgment he's describing here in Romans 14 is for believers and will most likely take place between the rapture of the church described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the second coming of Jesus described in Revelation 19. So during that seven-year tribulation period, while there's great judgment here on the earth, the raptured church will be in God's presence, and this is what we will be doing during that period of time. Now, uh, other brothers and sisters... Uh, uh, of ours, followers of Jesus, agree that this judgment is for the end times, but they're more inclined to view all of the judgments as happening at once, that, that the great white throne and the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment of the nations are just different ways to describe the same judgment that's going to take place at the end times. Um, God will show us that I'm right later in time. So, no. There's, there's disagreement about these things. Regardless, all of us agree this is part of the end times. It's coming in the future. 
Now, question three, this is the most important question of all. What will we give an account for at the judgment seat of Christ? What, we will, what will we give an account for at the judgment seat of Christ? Paul says, we must all, each of us, will give an account of ourselves to God. Now, what does this mean? This is a serious question. In Revelation 20, at the great white throne judgment, the dead stand before God, Paul, uh, John describes this, and are judged on the basis of the records that are kept in books, books that record all that the dead have done, and on the basis of what is in the books, the dead are condemned to eternal torment in the lake of fire. Now in 1 Corinthians 3, Steve read that passage so well just a little bit ago. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks about the judgment on the day, and the results of the judgment are not death, but everyone who goes through the judgment is saved, but it is their works again that are being weighed. So what are we going to answer for at the judgment seat of Christ? Now can I confess to you that I don't think we have a very good handle on this? There are things that we know about the judgment seat of Christ and there are questions that we still have. In particular, what role is your sin going to have in the judgment seat of Christ? If any. Frankly, this can be a source of great fear. Are you worried about this judgment? Here are some verses that might make you afraid. I already referred to 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Good or bad. 1 John 2.28, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. I don't want to be ashamed. So how do we avoid being ashamed? Or how about what Jesus said in Matthew 12? But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Every empty word? Brothers and sisters, I am in trouble. Or 1 Corinthians 5, 4, 5. Here we go. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each one will receive their praise from God. Picture it. Does this match your view of the judgment seat of Christ? This is the impression that I have received from at various times over the years. There I am, standing, or you, standing before God, and everybody, everybody who's a follower of Jesus from all time, standing around, we're in a stadium. And here I'm standing before God. It's my turn. There's the jumbotron up in front of all of us. And the angel says, let's roll the tape and remember your life. And there in front of God and angels and every single one of you goes my life. All of the empty words that I've said. All the times that um, I... <laughs> the hidden motives. The motives. All the times that I greeted you in the foyer and, and I was fake and being happy to see you. There they are. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. You've done that too. 
hidden things in darkness, the sins that nobody knows about, and I mean nobody knows about, but you. Up on the screen for all to see. I'm not sure seven years is going to be long enough. Is there, is there anybody who's not going to be ashamed? If, if that's what this is describing? How do we square that? Now, how do we square that image, which is loosely, very loosely tied to these verses that I just read, how do we square that image with what the Bible says about what has happened to our sin? How do we put these together? So, like, look at John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Will not be judged. Or Romans 8, 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or uh, Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Our sins are long gone in Jesus. Is God going to bring them home for the judgment seat of Christ? If he's thrown them like Micah 7 says in the depths of the sea, is he going fishing before the, day of the judgment seat of Christ? How do you square this? How do you put these things together? Frankly, I have yet to find anyone, any writer or theologian who puts these things together very well. We all struggle with this. This is something I don't understand. This is what theologians fight about when they argue about the judgment seat of Christ, when it will happen, and then the role that our sin plays. And the wise teachers put both of these sets of verses right next to each other, and we say, I'm not sure how this all works out. But I, I want to shape your thinking if I can, or help you with some, some final ideas, three fin- final ideas I want to share with you. Number one, I think the Bible indicates, seems to indicate that the judgment seat of Christ focuses on your ministry, focuses on your ministry, the ways you have served others. The texts that describe the judgment seat of Christ don't seem to focus on everything that you have done, but on how you use the gifts and skills and opportunities that God has given you to serve others. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 3.10. We won't read it again, but Steve read it. Remember, it was about Paul building on the foundation of the church. So the foundation is Jesus and Paul builds. And he says, someday I will be judged by God for how I have built the church, how I have been involved in ministering, how I've been involved in serving others. I think this is the sort of accountability that elders will experience. Hebrews 13:17 says, "Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as one who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy not a burden for that would be of no benefit for you." So men, serve as elders, did you use the authority entrusted to you by God to shepherd the flock? One of the questions I believe you'll be asked at the judgment seat of Christ. Now the word bad in 2 Corinthians 5.10, when it says we'll receive what's due us for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad, the word bad is not the usual word in the New Testament for evil. Instead, it's a word that means worthless or valueless. I'm sure there's ministry that I have done that has had little eternal value. It's just been bad. And, And the day will reveal it. The emphasis of the passage as it discuss the judgment seat of Christ seems to be on how you've used the gifts and opportunities and skills you had to serve 
others. Now, second, the judgment seat of Christ will elicit praise. It will elicit praise. We read 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Do you remember how it ends? 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Each one will receive praise from God. Really? This is normal. This is what to expect. Praise from God. Commendation is the norm, not condemnation. Praise. Now third, the judgment seat of Christ will magnify God's grace. Will magnify God's grace. I'm not saying that there is, but if there is a giant screen and all of my sins are on display for all of you to see, I'm not sure that's the way it's going to be, but just imagine that. That would be the worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario, that's it. Remember the context in which it will happen. In the presence of the Lord Jesus. Remembering who he is. My sins on display in front of the one who paid for them in full. It will be a moment of of shame. But if it's that way, I think more magnificently, it will be a moment to give thanks to God. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you paid for that sin. You paid for that sin too. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your death was sufficient to cover that sin, that thing that I did that no one knows about. And you, Lord Jesus, paid for it. All of my sins. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And no one's going to be standing around saying, can you believe what Divinity did? I can't believe it. I thought he was a lot better than that, but look, there it's on the screen. No one's going to be saying that. They'll be saying, Oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you forgave him. If you forgave forgave him for that, surely you can forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. You are the great Savior. I'm not sure that there's going to be the jumbotron in heaven. I'm inclined to think not. But even if it is, think about the context in which we will be standing there before the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus, who is more than sufficient to pay the penalty for all of your sins. And every good deed as it's revealed, every, everything that we have done, again, an opportunity to magnify God's grace. Oh God, yeah, I did teach that Sunday school class even when I was, had morning sickness and I was so sick, I wanted to throw up. And the glue made me so nauseous on those papers and, and you helped me do that. Thank you. Or uh, that money that, that you gave to that missionary and you say, God, You've provided that money for me. Thank you so much for helping me to do that, to teach that class, to give that money, to call that person on the phone and to sew that quilt and to pray with that person and to lead that ministry. You gave me the grace to do that. All this is your work. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And then I think if I understand Revelation 4 correctly, we'll stand before the Lord Jesus and cast the crowns that he has given us as rewards for honoring him, we'll cast them before him for the honor of his great name because he is the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ in every way will magnify the kindness and supremacy of our Savior. And so, brothers, let's not judge one another or condemn one another over areas of liberty. You're not qualified for the job, but the Lord Jesus is. There was a farmer, he was no particular fan of the church. 
And uh, he, he had a field that was right next to the church in this small town. And, and every Sunday morning, this field was the only field he worked on. He did it Sunday morning. He timed his arrival time to match when everybody else would be coming to the church to worship. He would be there with his tractor, and he brought the loudest tractor he had. And he always did as close to the church on Sunday morning as possible, the noisiest, dirtiest, dustiest job. That's when he spread his fertilizer on Sunday morning when God's people were gathered together. He'd thumb his nose at them every Sunday morning. Well, he did that one season. Came time to uh, harvest in October, and that field yielded the biggest harvest that he had ever had. So he sat down and he wrote a letter to the newspaper and challenged the Christians in his town. He said, the only time I ever worked on this field was when you Christians were in church worshiping and I got the biggest harvest I've ever had. How do you explain that? And the editor replied with one sentence, God does not settle all his accounts in the month of October. But he does settle them. So that's why we refrain, brothers and sisters, from judging one another and showing contempt. Let us pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this word that Paul wrote that celebrates the lordship of Jesus. Every knee bowing before him in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. Lord, it is mind-boggling for us to think about this that Every person who has ever lived, regardless of their, the continent on which they were born, the language they spoke, the color of their skin, the length of their days, the power or uh, oppression that they uh, in, experienced, every knee, every tongue before the Lord Jesus bowing. Lord, it is mind-boggling for us too to think about this judgment seat of Christ and I confess I don't understand everything that the Bible says about it. But I I, I trust your goodness. I trust the magnificence of your grace and your great kindness. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would turn us from the temptation to judge one another and show contempt for one another. Turn us from that temptation in honor of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Your supremacy is so much more than, than these simple things that we, uh, the small things, relatively small things that we argue about. So may the Lordship of Jesus loom large as we seek to love one another. Help us toward that end. We pray in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you all to stand as we sing praise to our God once more this morning.